Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday for the final show of the week and coming up over the next hour. Titan tragedy. Condolences being sent to the friends and family of the five lost aboard the Ocean Gate submersible after it suffered a catastrophic implosion days ago. New details of the tragic event and new scrutiny of Ocean Gate itself and the experimental technology used to create the craft. Titanic film director James Cameron says Ocean Gate's questionable safety oversight reminds him of the hubris of the original crew aboard the Titanic ship that sank over 100 years ago. We will hear from him later on in this hour. Plus, a defense of the counteroffense. The Ukrainian prime minister urging patience in response to apparent disappointment over their progress so far. And wine, dine and sign. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi honoured at a lavish White House state dinner. The two nations hammering out an array of tech and defence deals along the way. He's also meeting numerous tech leaders Friday before leaving Washington, D.C. And from fine cuisine to red on the screen. A rough start to trade on tap. U.S. futures softer, as you can see there. Actually, Wall Street set for a losing week. Europe also down, as you can see, and pulling back quite significantly, too. We've had a wave of rate hikes in the past week from the United Kingdom, Turkey, Norway and Switzerland, highlighting central bankers' inflation-fighting resolve remains undeterred, even at the cost of weaker economic growth. And, of course, that continues to weigh on markets, too. Turkey's central bank also saying its rate hike this week after a two-year Erdogan-led siesta is just the first in a series of moves. They favour, though, a gradual approach, they say. Investors, it seems, want more and they want it faster. The Turkish lira falling for a second straight day against the dollar as a result. A busy show coming up, as always, but let's get right to our main story today. A search for answers after the search for the missing submersible ended in tragedy. This is a incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor. Uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. The U.S. Navy says it detected sounds of a possible implosion in the area on Sunday around the same time communication was lost. They judged at the time that it was not definitive proof of an accident, so the search operations continued. Paula Newton joins us now. Paula, um, we continue to get more and more details. I think just listening to, to what we've heard in the past 24 hours, I think the one saving grace is that those on board probably knew very little about what happened and, and we hope didn't suffer. The suffering now is left to their family and friends left behind. Absolutely. A small measure of comfort for the friends and family of the five who have already been through so much. And Julia, there will be plenty of time in the coming weeks and months for the investigation. But right now, the family's trying to come to terms with five people who were committed 
to the exploration of the deep sea. The 24th of July 1987 was my first dive to the Titanic with two team members, and it was an unforgettable moment. That was Paul-Henri Nargiolet, the 77-year-old Frenchman who made more than 30 dives to the Titanic, earning him the nickname Mr. Titanic. David Gallo is Nargiolet's close friend, colleague, and an oceanographer himself. I'm sure he did everything he could, or would do everything he could do to make sure that they had every chance of surviving whatever it was. For Stockton Rush, the chief executive of the firm behind the dive, who was also on board, the experience of those involved was always crucial to the mission. There are five individuals can go on each dive. Uh, three of those are what we call mission specialists. So those are the folks who help finance the mission, um, but they are also active participants. So why we're not a fan of the tourist term is because these are crew members. One of those crew members is the British billionaire and explorer Hamish Harding. Part of two record-breaking trips to the South Pole, he also held a world record for the fastest circumnavigation of the globe via both poles. Last year, he went into space with Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin Company. I've always wanted to do this, and the the sheer experience of looking out of the window is something I'm looking forward to. In a post on social media before the dive, he described feeling proud to be part of the Titan's expedition. Also on board, Shazada Dawood, who comes from one of Pakistan's richest families and lived in the UK with his wife and two children. He'd taken his son, Suleiman, just 19 years old, along with him. A family statement asked for privacy and prayers when the sub went missing. A search that was called impossible, now over. The Titan and the five people on board now lie at the bottom of the ocean. You know, I know there has been a lot of speculation as to why they launched this robust international effort, even if the U.S. Navy had perhaps surmised that there was what they call a catastrophic implosion. Having said that, certainly Canadian officials say, look, we are obligated uh, to basically call out the resources that we can muster, given what was, uh, you know, essentially an SOS call. Uh, And they certainly, while they are pulling back resources now, do not regret the effort that was taken to save these lives. Yeah, I understand. Paul Newton, thank you so much for that. And following the tragedy, the company OceanGate and its CEO, who was aboard the Titan, are coming under heavy scrutiny. Gabe Cohen joins us now. Gabe, there were concerns about safety raised in the years, I think we can call it, in the run-up to this tragedy. The industry itself, small-knit, tight-knit community, some are starting to voice more concerns. What are officials saying at this moment? Because there's clearly going to have to be an investigation. Yeah, look, Julia, many experts in the deep sea community say the warning signs from OceanGate were there. They were evident, they were obvious, uh, but they were ignored. The way the vessel was built, the way it was tested, and all of this was long before it plunged to a catastrophic collapse. This morning, former OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush and his ill-fated Titan submersible facing intense scrutiny. Rush, who perished in the Titan, had a reputation as a visionary, but also as a self-proclaimed rule breaker. I think it was General MacArthur said, you're remembered for the rules you break. And, you know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me. The co-founder of OceanGate, Guillermo Sunline, says he had complete faith in Rush and would have gone on the Titanic expedition himself if he'd had the chance. There's always a risk of of a catastrophic implosion. 
it's it's something that we know about. It's something that we plan for, plan against, and um, and it's just a, a, a known risk. DJ Verning, who's a subcontractor for OceanGate, says Russia's experimental design passed testing for the pressures that would be found at Titanic's depth. Then the question is, well, if you do that repeatedly, then what happens? So these are the sorts of questions that if you have a long research and development program, you start answering. But if you really are pushing the envelope, um, there's no time to you know, you're, you're answering those questions in real time. Will Conan, who chairs the submarine committee of the Marine Technology Society, says he wrote to Rush concerned OceanGate wasn't following the same safety standards as other vessels. In his 2018 letter, first obtained by the New York Times, Conan warned Rush about what he called the company's experimental approach that could have serious consequences. CNN has previously reported that two former OceanGate employees who were not engineers separately raised safety concerns years ago about the hull of the Titan sub. The hull was made of carbon fiber composite, the type of material used in spacecraft. Filmmaker James Cameron, who's made more than 30 dives to the wreckage of the Titanic himself, says the danger of using carbon fiber composite is known within the engineering community. We always understood that this was the wrong material for submersible hulls because with each pressure cycle, you can have progressive damage. It's quite insidious, and that, I think, lulled them into a sense of confidence and and led to this tragedy. And Julie, I interviewed Stockton Rush several times as a reporter back in Seattle, and I really pressed him about the safety of these vessels. And he told me he viewed those viewed those submersibles as armored vehicles. And before another expedition, he said to me, quote, everyone is getting back safe. We can take risks with equipment, but not with people. And, and you asked about officials. Uh, we know that experts have said it's basically the Wild West out there when you dive in international waters. So at this point, there's very little regulation. We're not sure what the investigation, if any, could entail. Hmm, but that's an interesting statement. We can take risk with technology and not with people. Gabe, good to have you. Thank you for that. Gabe Cohen. Ukraine's air defenses are claiming success in the latest wave of Russian missile attacks. Kyiv says it shot down all 13 missiles launched against an airfield in the west of the country overnight. But Ukraine says Russian fire did get through in the Zaporizhia region, where it killed at least two people. And on the diplomatic front, Kyiv is taking political flack from allies over what many see as the slow pace of progress in its counteroffensive. But Ukraine's prime minister responded with a kind of reality check. Counteroffensive is not Hollywood uh, movie, it's not easy walk. Uh, Counteroffensive is number of military operations. Uh, Sometimes it's offensive, sometimes it's defensive, sometimes it could be uh, tactical pauses. Uh, unfortunately, during our preparation for this counteroffensive, Russians were preparing too. So there is so much uh, minefields which really make it uh, slower uh, to, uh, I mean, movement into their head. And Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will have lunch with U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris and Secretary of State Antony Blinken this Friday, the final day of his state visit. Thursday's events culminated in a dinner at the White House with CEOs from tech giants Apple, Google and Microsoft also attending. President Joe Biden made this toast to his guest. 
toast to our partnership, to our people, to the possibilities that lie ahead, to two great friends, two great nations, and two great powers. Cheers. And before the dinner, Prime Minister Narendra Modi made a rare address to Congress that also drew protests from some Democrats. Arlet Sines joins us now. Arlet, it's hard not to make a comparison between the warmth, the congeniality, two great friends comparisons between the Indian Prime Minister and the deterioration in relations that we've seen between the United States and China, the second most populous nation in the world. But I think that contrast perhaps was meant. Do you think the U.S. administration view this as a success? And uh, what else will we see from Prime Minister Modi today? Well, Julia, the White House certainly tried to pull out all the stops, rolling out the red carpet for India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, as they are trying to show that they are focused on bolstering ties with India, which they really view, as the president described, as one of the defining partnerships of the 21st century. That is why you saw him have this lavish state dinner, big arrival ceremony, and also address Congress. Ultimately, the White House is betting that India could serve as a counterbalance to China. You know, the White House says that this was not a trip about China, but it certainly was the backdrop of much of the uh, discussions and the topics that came up over this state visit. Uh, Yesterday, in fact, in that press conference that President Biden held, uh, he didn't walk back the fact that he had called the Chinese uh, president a dictator. He said that he doesn't think that that labeling Xi that way uh, is going to impact their efforts to stabilize the relationship, and that he still hopes that he can speak and meet with Xi in the future. But the fact that the president was holding this state visit for India, it also shows uh, how they were weighing uh, the focus on countering China against some of the tough issues that they face regarding India, especially when it comes to Modi's human rights record. He addressed Congress. There were at least six Democrats who decided to boycott that speech due to his human rights record. Uh, And the White House ahead of time had said that the president wasn't going to lecture Modi on human rights or democracy. The president did say that he brought up democratic values uh, in their discussions, but it was also notable that Modi stood before the press and took some questions. That is something that Modi very rarely does. And he took a very pointed question about his uh, own crackdown on political uh, dissidents, uh, as well as targeting of religious minorities. Now, Modi stood there and claimed that there is no space for discrimination in his country. Uh, and, and that it's important that a democracy thrives. But there are still questions uh, about his human rights records and this drift towards authoritarianism that we've seen from Modi. But really what the White House has been trying to emphasize here in the course of these uh, past two days is that they do believe that bolstering this relationship with China, uh, with uh, India will serve as that counterbalance to China. A bit later uh, this morning, Biden and Modi will be meeting with tech leaders from the AI semiconductor and also space uh, industries uh, as he's trying to show that they're trying to build these relationships, uh, strengthen these economic ties, especially in some of those evolving industries as well. Yes, and diversification of supply chains, a crucial Mm -hmm. part of that, certainly. Arlette, great to have you with us. Thank you. Arlette signs there. Okay, coming up here on First Move, on the road to 100% zero emission car sales. It's the Norway way to make the planet a greener place. That's next. And later, a path to safety for refugees. We'll hear about efforts to find security and jobs for vulnerable, displaced people. Stay with First Move. That's up next.
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there. Some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Norway is a well-known leader in renewable energy. Over 90% of its electricity comes from hydroelectric power, and it's now aiming for 100% of cars sold to be zero-emission vehicles by 2025, and they're not far away. This year, electric cars account for 90% of new cars purchased. Just to put that in context, around 35% of all cars in the greater Oslo area are now fully electric. And it's been a long road, let's be clear, to get to this point, including decades of government-driven incentives. Just to name a few, and you can barely see that chart, but it's an important one. In 2001, EVs were sold without sales tax. Later, they were given the right to drive in bus lanes. Discounts were offered on travelling on things like ferries. And charging facilities were provided in apartment buildings. Remember also, though, Norway is Western Europe's largest petroleum producer. The majority of its oil and gas is exported, which has certainly helped, I'm sure, fund the internal transition to renewables. Joining us now, Espen Bart Eide. He's Norway's Minister of Climate and Environment, and he's joining us from Oslo. Minister, fantastic to have you on the show. Clearly much to discuss. Um, with regards to electric vehicles, this is an astonishing achievement. And in many cases, it was about laying the groundwork long before there were enough cars or access to electric vehicles or hybrids from the suppliers? No, that's absolutely right. Uh, we, we started very early, as you very correctly said, decades ago, we exempted electric cars, fully electric cars, that is, uh, from uh, VAT, from, from the normal car taxes. So that they were relatively cheaper than they would have been without those uh, measures. And we also started to give certain benefits for driving in bus lanes, for instance. So it was quite attractive to get an electric car. But there weren't that many electric cars around. So for many years, this was a policy waiting for the vehicles. But then a little bit over 10 years ago, we, we really got this boom, uh, uh, among others, from Tesla. But some other um, car makers really came with cars that were uh, attractive for families, uh, for longer range and so on. And then suddenly this really took off. And then what we've seen after that is that uh, on top of uh, 
on top of the 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 uh, benefits at the point of sales it's also important to have a charging infrastructure so eventually the focus moved towards making sure that wherever you are in the country there is a charger close to you so you never run out of battery and now people have really accepted this and people basically love these cars I mean, there are so many pieces to this. The chart looking at uh, Tesla purchases relative to everyone else, even in 2023, and I think we've got that somewhere, is, is quite fascinating. So perhaps we have to thank Elon Musk as well for the progress that you're making. But as you mentioned, it was, wow, look at that. I mean, that's the chart now. Um, it was about efforts to equalise the economics between combustion cars and electric or hybrid vehicles. And as you said, sort of higher taxes for high emission cars and lower relatively for for the cleaner vehicles. It is about the economics first and foremost. And then we can talk about charging. Mm. Yes, exactly. So we actually did not really increase the tax on petrol cars. We just took away all kinds of tax on the electric cars. So, so we uh, we had the the benefit in quotation marks that our our um, taxes for cars used to be relatively high. So taking them away totally, meaning all taxes, all VAT, all fees, uh, meant uh, quite a significant advantage for the electric car, which would normally in the market 10 to 15 years ago be more expensive cars. So that was normalized, and then people realized that once you have that car, you you're. Uh, uh, the electricity is uh, generally much less expensive than the alternative fuel, which would be, you know, be petrol or, or, uh, or gasoline. And uh, um, so it was cheaper in use. And then came all the other added benefits. So all of that together uh, made people really interested. Once the cars came along, that actually could take a family uh, decent distance also in winter conditions. Because you should remember that Norway is a... A sparsely populated country, but a rather large country, large distances mm. and very cold. We have very long winters. So if anybody wonders in uh, California or somewhere else if an uh, electric car works in winter, well, yes, it does. It works uh, in our really Arctic conditions. Uh, range gets a little lower, but still w- well inside of what people actually need. That's the key, though, to what you were saying earlier, which is charging and the ability to charge yes. wherever you go, particularly if people are sparsely populated and have relatively long distances to go. And I, I was looking at some of the data on this, and perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've got 22,000 public chargers that have been installed now for around half a million EVs. So I make that 23 cars per available charger, and you've mandated rest stops, positioning, apartment buildings, as I mentioned. Do you think ultimately that's the key, taking away that charging anxiety and people not worrying about traveling and having to find somewhere to charge or long wait times for charging yeah i think that's exactly spot on because now the price has been normalized so you're actually not paying much more for an electric car and then you get the benefit in usage as long as you know that you will not run out of a battery before you get to your destination or at least that you can charge on the way and of course, the way we live in Norway, most people live in houses, not in the big cities, but in the rest of the country. That normally means you can charge at home. So you start in the morning with a fully charged car. The point is that you also want to get somewhere with that car. And then if, if that's a short distance, you will just use your own house uh, uh, electricity that you charge in the morning. In the long distance, you need to make be assured that the charging infrastructure is there. And no, it is 
And in the early days, it was basically around in and around the large cities that we had charging infrastructure. Then we saw a fast uptake in cities, but not so much in the countryside. Today, we have charging infrastructure from the, basically all over the country. Mm. And that means that we've seen a fast uh, uptake also in the most remote uh, counties of the country where people ori originally were skeptical because they're seeing that they are also now beneficiary of this. And then last thing I'd like to say on that is that now people are not so uh, worried any longer about range because range has become rather good, five, six hundred kilom kilometers uh, for many, even not very expensive cars. What they are now worry about is the charging time. So much <laughs> of the technology we see now is is to reduce the time it takes to charge the car. And eventually, that will not be much longer than having a cup of coffee, which you probably should have anyway if you've already driven four or 500 kilometers. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. Time to, time to have a bit of a rest and um, a recharge personally, never mind the car. Um, you know, we've seen a dramatic fall in the cost of, of batteries, and this is also one aspect that I think is important. We actually don't have enough of the resources that go into these batteries, the rare earth elements, for example, for other nations to be as comprehensive as you've done. What are you doing and what are you thinking about the surety of supplies? Because most of these elements are, are mined in, we can call them unstable countries in particular. I worry that we're swapping sort of one reliance on oil and gas from certain unstable countries to perhaps rare earth elements and beyond in, in other nations. How do we focus on that? And ensure so that I'm that so happy you there. asked that question. Julie, I'm Please. so happy you asked that question because literally two days ago, the government uh, here came out with a, a mineral strategy, a mineral mining strategy, which was precisely aimed at saying we, the green shift, the green transition needs a lot of new rare earths, metals, minerals, and we cannot rely on them only coming from uh, faraway places, maybe under the control of authoritarian states. So we need in Europe and in Norway to do our own homework to see what we have. And we actually have some of that in our soil and in our, uh, in our mountains. So we are now uh, reopening or starting new mines, uh, trying to do that in the most environmentally friendly way, uh, focusing on nature restoration afterwards and mm. making sure that we this is moving into a circular economy. But we have to be very honest, and you're, you're spot on here. We will need more of this stuff if you want to decarbonize the world. So as oil goes out of our system, which it has to do because uh, we, we cannot continue to heat the planet as we've done, we will need these rare earths and minerals. They are not contributing negatively to climate change, but they have to be environmentally friendly and nature friendly. So we are, we are also seeing this as an opportunity for growing new businesses, which are all those businesses related to electrification and to battery technology. That means for the windmills, for the solar panels, for, but also for, for the battery uh, components. And we are very eager, as uh, all the European uh, states are in what's called the European Battery Alliance, that every battery that we make now is eco-designed so that it can be reused and used over and over again. And when you cannot use it any longer, uh, you will be able to take out the components to make mm. new batteries or other new uh, electronics that you need for the green transition. Yeah. So all this recycling. comes together. And uh, I think it's important to, yes, exactly, recycling, yeah. reuse and making sure that the, the nature footprint is as low as possible.
Minister, I have about a minute left, but I do want to get um, just your view on this, because to your point, there are trade-offs here. When you build a wind farm, there's environmental costs. If you start drilling for these minerals, you're benefiting on the one hand, but there are environmental concerns, or at least you're certainly getting pressure from environmentalists on some of these choices. How do you weigh up the costs versus the benefits? And how do you explain it to people that are concerned? Exactly. So, you know, you know, I'm Minister of Climate and Environment. So if I was yeah. only Climate Minister, maybe I would say that all kinds of new energy, clean energy is good. Uh, as Environment Minister, I have to tell myself, well, not always, because we cannot put uh, the windmills on the most sensitive uh, parts of land. So we need to reconcile this. We have to make sure that we know uh, what we do to nature when we expand uh, uh, the use of renewable technology, because you know, oil and gas uh, what, did not put such a big demand on nature or space. What it did was to destroy the planet by global warming. Mm. So now we need to replace uh, 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 an energy form that is terrible for the climate uh, with uh, one that is good for the climate, but that ne needs space. So that means that we have to think seriously about what kind of space, what's the spatial planning, what else should we not do in order to allow all this... Uh, clean energy to be produced. And that's a genuine dilemma. Yeah. It's a dilemma that we have to solve because it's not either or. We have to remember that we are living in the time of a climate crisis, but also a nature crisis. And these two have to be reconciled. Good news is it can be done because we know how to produce more with less. We're getting mm. increasingly efficient with the same uh, area used or space, use of space. But uh, but we need to uh, make sure that we think about this as a holistic package. Uh, yeah. And that's a part of what we're in the midst of right now. Yeah, I like the way you frame the challenge, because it, it is a trade-off in some respects. It's different, but it is a trade-off. And we have to be very aware of, mm. of climate and the environment, as you say. Uh, Minister, I'm just getting warmed up, but I've run out of time. So please come back on soon and uh, we'll continue the conversation. Great to have you on. So thank you. Esther and thank Roth, you, Julia. It was great to be on your show. Likewise. Mm. Norway's Minister of Climate and Environment. So thank you. Have a great weekend. Welcome back to First Move. A search for answers underway after the missing Ocean Gate submersible suffered a, quote, catastrophic implosion, that according to the U.S. Coast Guard. Meanwhile, the U.S. Navy says it detected the sound of a possible implosion on Sunday. Around the same time, communication was lost with the vessel. And at that time, too, the noise was not thought to be definitive, so those search operations continued regardless. Mikael Marquez joins us now. Mikael, it's a community there that I think that's also in, in mourning for this loss. What have they been telling you? Yeah, very much so. You know, we're, in, we're in a harborside park here in St. John's. The flags are at half-staff. Everybody's sort of come down. There was this real sense of hope clinging to a sliver of hope for much of this week, but also fear that if they were alive, they were in horrible conditions. In the dark, it was cold. Uh, they would have been having dwindling oxygen. And then to, to, to have this news uh, that this massive implosion, the, the, the craft breaking up into several pieces, coming to rest just in front of the Titanic itself, the, the, the wreckage that it was going to see, um, it, it's, it's just struck a lot of people. This is a seaside town. They're, they're used to dealing with emergencies at sea with oil, gas, fishermen, uh, those sort of things. And um, 
I think this one was was different. They also have a very long history of of the Titanic here, from the time that the Titanic itself went down to the films that were made to all of that research community that has that ships out that way. This is the closest land to it, 460 miles away. So there's a real tie to the sea. There's a real tie to this community, um, and it's 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 striking people hard. It's um, it was just a shock to to realize that it ended this way. In some ways, people have said. Uh, it may be for the best. The, the fact that it happened so quickly, these people never knew um, what what happened. Yeah, right the one saving grace here, we pray they didn't suffer. Um, Miguel, thank you so much for that, Sorry. Miguel Marquez. And filmmaker James Cameron, who directed the 97 movie Titanic and has made more than 30 dives himself to the wreckage, has been speaking about the tragic outcome. He joined my colleague Anderson Cooper. The only scenario that I could come up with in my mind that could account for that was, it was a, an implosion, a shockwave event so powerful that it actually took out a secondary system that has its own, <clears throat> its own pressure vessel and its own battery power supply, which is the transponder that the ship uses to track where the sub is. So I was thinking implosion then, that's Monday morning. I got on the horn again with some other people tracked down some intel that was probably of a military origin, although it could have been research because there are hydrophones all over the Atlantic, and got confirmation that there was some kind of loud noise consistent with an implosion event. That seemed to me enough confirmation that I let all of my inner circle of people know that we had lost our comrades, um, and I uh, encouraged everybody to, to raise a glass in their honor on Monday. Then I watched over the ensuing days this whole sort of everybody running around with their hair on fire search, knowing full well that it was futile, hoping against hope that I was wrong, but knowing in my bones that I wasn't. I'm not worried about exploration because explorers will go. And I'm not worried about innovation because people will innovate. I'm worried that it has a negative impact on, let's say, citizen explorers, tourists, you know. But these are serious people with serious curiosity, willing to put serious money down to go to these interesting places. And I don't want to discourage that. But I think that it's almost a, now the lesson, the takeaway is, make sure if you're going to go into a vehicle, whether it's an aircraft or a surface craft or a, a submersible, that it's been through certifying agencies, you know, that it's been signed off. Every day we trust our lives to, to engineering. We step into an elevator. We make an assumption that somebody somewhere has done the math properly and it's all been certified properly. We should take the same precautions when we get into a submersible. Okay, still to come, a commitment by some of the world's biggest companies to help welcome and hire displaced people in Europe. My interview with the Tent Partnership, next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. Hope away from home was the theme of this year's World Refugee Day. At a time when we're seeing people displaced and move across Europe in greater numbers than any time since World War II, 
One organisation is working to help integrate them into communities and into the workforce. The Tent Partnership for Refugees has more than 300 companies in industries ranging from retail and hospitality to technology and also manufacturing. And earlier this week, I spoke to Hamdi Ulakaya, the chairman and CEO of Chobani and the founder of the Tent Partnership, along with Jay Ofori Ajboka, the vice president of People Experience and Technology for Global Operations at Amazon. And we spoke about the importance of training, hiring and investing in Europe's refugees and what they also give back. We've launched this project, we call it Sunflower to mobilize businesses to hire and train uh, Ukrainian refugees all across Europe. 40 companies committed all across Europe to hire, train 250,000 refugees in the next three years. And that means, uh, you know, we, we, we estimated $2 billion a year, uh, uh, you know, income for refugees across, the, across Europe. So this is... Uh, the, this is the, uh, the, the, the intent was when we started in February this project uh, here in London that we would have you know companies that already exist in tent coalition but getting new companies in France and UK and, and, and all, all, all uh, areas of Europe and mobilize them to get involved in this most critical humanitarian crisis that we're facing. And many of these are multinational companies. They'd already made commitments to help US-based refugees. And now this is about helping support refugees that are located all across Europe too. Um, Afori, come in here because I know for you as well, like Hamdi, this is not just about a commitment by uh, the company that you work for. It's also personal. Your father, of his own free will, moved from Ghana, but started his life fresh in the United States. So you know what it's like to change everything and to grow up rebuilding your life. What does this mean to be part of, not just for Amazon, but for you personally? Yeah, you know, I, I thank you, Julian, and thank you, Hamdi, again. Good to see you. I, I'll tell you, it, it means so much. You know, first, Amazon, our commitment, our commitment to hire 5,000 refugees here in Europe over the next three years, which is in addition to the 5,000 refugees we we committed to hire last year in the United States over uh, through 2024. Uh, in addition to that hiring commitment, we understand the importance of training. Uh, we've committed to 10,000 training, 10,000 Ukrainians globally, free of charge through our IT Skills for You program. You know, so th- that, that and it's a global program again, free of charge. So it's exciting uh, for, for so many reasons. And as you pointed out, you know, it is personal to me. It is personal to me. But before I get to why it's personal to me, I want to tell you why we're doing it as a company. We're doing it, number one, because it's the right thing to do. We recognize as a company that there's a community out there that we have an opportunity to, uh, to lean in and to help. We have an opportunity to lean into our leadership principle of success and scale brings about broad responsibility. And then, then lastly, uh, we really believe in a strong, diverse workforce. Diversity makes us stronger. The innovation, the, the, the talent, the creativity that a diverse workforce brings to us into business is so, so important. And uh, as you pointed out, the personal part to me is, as you pointed out, my father did immigrate from Ghana more than 52 years ago. And he came up with his own free will and free will and accord. And I'm so proud to proud to work for Amazon, where our company recognizes that everyone didn't have the luxury that my father had. Uh, people don't come over. They have not come. They had left their country for various reasons. And we as Amazon are here to make sure that they they find meaningful employment and partner with great organizations like Tent and other organizations to make sure that they're successful as they as they start their new journey. 
Yeah, it's an important part of feeling like you belong. And Hamdi, you've said to us many times now, you stop being a refugee the, the moment you have a job and you have purpose and, and meaningful work. Um, you start to feel like you're building a home in, in a foreign country. Um, talk to me about what you just mentioned, though, about the, the specifics in terms of training and jobs, because this is not all about jobs. It is about sort of helping people transition to a new life. What's the prospect for those people that are pro- being provided with some form of training, perhaps for a future career or, or a future job? You know, training on this part, of what you mentioned, is so crucial, right? So it's not only for the refugees, it's crucial for everyone. Jobs are changing, the technologies are changing, the lives are changing. And, and how we get aligned with this is extremely important, but this is more crucial for refugees. Imagine uh, a, a sister of mine, refugee sister of mine yesterday in the event talked, um, you know, Hannah, when she moved from Ukraine to Moldova into, uh, you know, Poland, she was a, uh, you know, a financial investor and she ended up doing the uh, technology side of it in a technology company. And, and how she learned all that skills was extremely crucial for her to be able to get a job. So these companies, these amazing companies, and, and, and offering this um, job training is actually preparing for refugees to be aligned for the jobs that are available where they are and also is available for their life going forward. Yeah, it's about tackling the skills yeah. gap how, to your how, point, how, the how, language how, barrier. Yeah. But but also, I think um, integrating into society. Um, a very quick come in <laughs> before I before I steal your moment. Yeah, I'm saying, Hamdi, I'll me. just just add. That in yeah. addition, to what we do at Amazon is we add that uh, immigration support, we're legal legal support and consultation. So uh, Hamdi is exactly right. The training, the the upskilling, but the community the community involvement. But in addition to that, legal support and immigration support, we find that to be very valuable. As Hamdi pointed out, some of our speakers just uh, at the at the tent summit. Daria is a good example. She she migrated. She was a refugee from the Ukraine. She's in Poland. She took part in our, our program and she's thriving. She's successful. She's she's actually a part of that IT skills for you training program. She's a program manager where she's now giving back to Ukrainian refugees and being an example of the success that we want to replicate over and over around the globe for this refugee population. It's also smart business sense as well, Hamdi. And you and I, again, and we've talked about this, that um, your surveys across Europe suggest that actually consumers prefer to go to brands that are doing their part for societies and integrating refugees. To your point, too, the hope is that this will generate, um, what, two billion euros worth of um, income for these refugees. And one would hope that's paid out of profits for these businesses, too. This is not charity. This is about supporting a better business. And um, as Afori was saying, there are more diverse businesses, a stronger business. Exactly. And, mm. and Julia, you, you, you know, we talked about this, you know, before. This is not a charity, just like you said. This is good for business. There's not a many things that you could, you could bring to a table that is good for business, is good for refugees and good for uh, society and community. This, you know, this checks all, all of that. Ofori is extremely passionate about this because he's already seen the results, right? He's very close to people. He, he runs a He's, a, he's an amazing leader for this amazing uh, company across the, across the world. And what you see uh, refugees bring to the businesses when it comes to productivity, when it comes to commitment, when it comes to you know, innovation, culture, all dimension is really checked that this is extremely good for business. And yet you will see enormous amount of effect on refugees. Afori, I want you to um, 
actually respond to what Hamdi was saying there about you actually seeing the direct benefits. And it's actually not just about this latest announcement. You've mentioned it a couple of times. I think the 10,000 um, Ukrainian refugees that you're helping with um, data analytics skills under the Amazon Web Services umbrella, it's IT skills for you. Um, for, for people that might be watching that think, actually, maybe this does apply to me and I perhaps could come and get that training. I, I believe it's free as well. What's your message to those people that are perhaps nervous, don't know whether they should apply but would like to? What's the message about sort of overcoming that boundary and, and signing up and getting support? You know, I, I'd say be courageous, go for it. Um, IT Skills for You is a phenomenal program for Ukrainians, not just refugees, Ukrainians globally uh, through our AWS program. So people will not only get trained, they can get certifications, uh, they can improve their skills. So I would encourage people to go to the website and, and take a look, um, get involved, and, and you'll, you'll surprise yourself, upskill yourself, and you may find yourself, whether you're, you're tech savvy or not, that you find yourself in a, in a position that you find a career or a, a passion that you didn't know of. That's great advice. Um, Hamdi, I can't help but compare and contrast to the support that you guys are talking about um, to what we saw with the tragic loss of life with the boat that, boat that sunk off the coast of Greece in the last week. And what's often discussed, which is this sort of effective double standards, perhaps, in the treatment of, of refugees or displaced people from certain parts of the world. Do, do you agree that there's a double standard? And what more can we do to sort of close that gap, I think? The, 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 the conflict of invasion in Ukraine just happened you know, over a year ago. I was at the border in Poland, and when I see millions are you know, crossing, I said there's no difference between that crossing from the human tragedy, the crossing that I have seen between Venezuela and Colombia, or the crossing I've seen in Greek islands or in the border of Jordan and Syria or, or, or Turkey and Syria. This is same human tragedy in everywhere. And how we respond, I think, into the Ukrainian crisis, Europe actually shine in this moment. Like we had the vice uh, president of um, you know, European Commission at our event yesterday. He spoke really, really well on this. And I think Europe is, has to you know, make a decision on how they respond and, and, and how they can be you know, uh, committed to, to be there when, when, when the tragedy happens. And I think they broke... And, and a new level of uh, response when uh, Ukrainian tragedy happened. And I think that's going to wake up in a lot of people. There is, if you look at from the perspective of, you know, how big this issue is or how devastating it is, it's probably you will, you will think that there is so many issues from, you know, how we respond from based on region to region or double standards and all kinds of stuff. But what we saw yesterday is unified business community and responding to this, you know, tragedy as refugees being brothers and sisters and just like one of us and seeing that business community would dramatically benefit from this and bringing their voice and their ability to, you know, act. Thanks to Hamdi there and Afori. A warm welcome back to First Move on what a week it's been in business news. Musk and Zuckerberg apparently agree to a Vegas cage fight. Any wages on who'll be left standing upright? 
all we ask is that they please, please do it out of sight. And lab-grown meat is approved in the U.S. Will consumers take a bite? And central bankers flex their rate-hiking might. Jay Powell creating new Fed action fright. And finally on Wall Street, rate concerns making the outlook slightly less bright. A lower open and a losing week on tap. The Nasdaq, in fact, set to snap an eight-week winning streak. Fresh economic numbers out of Europe also not helping sentiment. Private sector growth in the eurozone slowing significantly in June. Activity in manufacturing also pulling back sharply. And slow growth concerns weighing on the oil markets too. Brent and U.S. crude both down well over 2% in trade. Also heading for a weekly loss. So that certainly ties to those growth concerns. And finally, on First Move this Friday, a chance to own what might be the one and only world's most recognisable dress, the white gown worn by Carrie Fisher when she played Princess Leia in the original 1977 Star Wars movie, it's up for auction. The seller says it might go for as much as two million dollars. It does look a little like a sheet there. Never mind the white one. It's all about that gold bikini. Do you remember that gold bikini with an enormous coat over the top to keep warm? And that's enough jabbering from me. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. And I'll see you on Monday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.